Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Selinski, aka the Running Wine Mom. Today, we have another wonderful guest with me, a world-renowned neuroscientist, a leading expert in diet and nutrition, and a pioneer in the field of food addiction, Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Avina is an author of numerous books, including her newest book, Sugarless, the bestseller, What to Eat When You When You Want to Get Pregnant, and Hedonic Eating. Her research has been recognized and honored by the by prestigious institutions, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Avino has also received her PhD in neuroscience and psychology from Princeton University and completed her postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology at the Rockefeller University in New York City. Dr. Avina is Associate Professor of Neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and a visiting professor at Princeton University. With 100 scholarly journal articles to her name, Dr. Avina's work has significantly influenced the fields of diet, nutrition, and overall eating. She is She's a sought-after speaker making appearances on television, radio, and at a Various and at various educational institutions to share her groundbreaking research of food addiction and nutrition across the lifespan. In today's episode, we'll dive into the science behind nutrition, diet, and food addiction, exploring topics such as breaking the cycle of sugar addiction, optimizing nutrition during pregnancy, and understanding the pleasure of food and its impact on our brains and behavior, as well as her newest book, set to release in December, Sugarless. So whether you're a parent looking for insights into feeding your child someone battling sugar cravings or simply interested in improving your overall health, you won't want to miss today's conversation with the brilliant Dr. Nicola Vina. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yes, I am so excited. And we um, connected because my dad met you down the shore. I met your dad. Yes, that was so fun. I love like connecting with people in these like random ways. So yes. Yeah. It was so funny because he texted me. He's like, I just met someone I think would be great for your podcast. I'm like, thanks for the support, dad. <laughs> um, so to start each episode, we have our wine of the week segment. Um, so grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. What is your wine of the week? W-I-N-E. My wine of the week. Oh, gosh. I was in Austria over the summer, and I fell in love with Gruner. I'm saying it wrong. Okay. It's Gruner Verlander. It's kind of like a white wine, like a, you know, just like a very light white wine, not very sweet. Um, so that's been like my new treat to myself. Yes. And as a, obviously lover of wine myself, I recently saw you posted about um, five wines that don't cause headaches. And yes. I tried the Fit Vine, really enjoy it. Um, do you have any suggestions on how to find wine that is the best without, you know, the tannins, sugar, and other chemicals? Yeah, definitely. I like Fit Vine a lot. Um, also, honestly, I've been doing a little bit of research on this. It has a lot to do with the sugar content in the wine. And so if you get wines from countries like Austria and some of those like more Eastern European countries, the way that they cultivate the grapes there, it's naturally lower in sugar content. And so that means it's just going to naturally like not give you a headache. So I definitely recommend checking out some of the wines from that region of the world because they seem to be, you know, a bit like healthier and definitely have less sugar. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like I drink so much wine that I'm always taking tips on how to do it better, I guess. <laughs> so before we dive deeper into the world of sugar and our diets and explore your book, I'd like to take a moment to learn about your career and your journey as a neuroscientist, a health psychologist as well, and a writer. There's so much I would love to ask you, but for today, we'll focus on the aspects of um, diet and sugar and your book, Sugarless and What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler. 
So as I mentioned, your career is nothing short of impressive. Can you share some key milestones or experiences that led you down the path of research and your expertise? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's so important to get that the unofficial story from people because I feel like, yeah, I have all these like great accomplishments and it looks all like peaches and cream, but it wasn't always like that. So um, yeah, so my journey, I guess, was you know not atypical, but a little bit different. I first person in my family to go to college. My parents did not go to college. Um, and so I kind of just going to college was a huge deal for me. That was a big achievement. And when I went to college, I got interested in the brain and just kind of how it worked. And it just kind of seemed almost like outer space to me. Like we have this brain that manages our entire being yeah. and we really don't know a lot about it. And then I um, got some really great advice from uh, my undergraduate mentor who was a professor that had taught a class that I loved and he invited me to do some research in his lab. And he said, you know, I think you'd really do well in graduate school. I think you should think about applying to get a PhD. And I said, okay, I don't know. <laughs> and so he encouraged me to apply to Princeton. And I thought, well, I don't know if about going to Princeton. I, I mean, I just barely first person to go to college, like we're talking Princeton now. And he said, no, I think you'll get in. I, I think it's a good fit for you. And so I kind of just followed his advice and that led me Princeton. And I just fell in love with doing research. Um, I learned so much from my previous advisors and mentors. And um, I really think if I could give one kernel of advice, it's you have to kind of go with your gut and trust the path that you're put on. Um, and then just kind of allow yourself to deviate as needed. And so even in my career now, I've been, you know, doing this for quite some time. I, I've always tried to keep that open mind of you know, I'm interested in a lot of things. And I decided, well, you know what, I'm also interested in communicating science to the public and helping people to understand the science. And that's kind of what led me down that path of, okay, well, maybe I should write a book about it. And right. so I think it's just important um, to kind of keep an open mind and always allow yourself room to grow and to deviate from the path that you think you're supposed to be on. That's so awesome. Um, I feel like Princeton is such a big deal. And that's probably so exciting for your family, for you being the first one to go. And then it's like, that's where you end up and everywhere. As a total side note, we're actually in a three-year research development, um, language development program with Princeton University. So they are tracking our son's um, language development from day zero to 1,000. Um, so that's be a cool thing that we're involved with. We have like cameras in our house and everything that they um, are researching. So yeah, that's cool. That must be through the baby lab. My uh, my younger daughter's done a bunch of different experiments there. She loves it. She's actually a little older now. She's eight, but I remember it was like the highlight of you know her day was when she was three or four years old and. We're going to the baby lab. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I like randomly found out about it through like a woman in the community, and so I'm so in the future we definitely want to have our kids involved in it because it's been yeah, it's really cool. It's good for the kids. It's good for the kids too to get experience, like understanding about how research works. Like yeah. what what does that mean? Because I think a lot of kids realize later on that oh, you could actually do real life research, like what's happening with your family. Right. It's not always going to be like in a laboratory somewhere, like mixing chemicals yeah. together. Right. Different ways to do it. 
Yeah, ours is just in our room. <laughs> so let's get into the main topics. Well, I feel as though so many people in our lives have such an issue with diet and sugar. Um, eliminating sugar can be daunting, especially given its um, prevalence in many foods. What are some practical steps individuals can take to begin reducing their sugar intake without feeling deprived? Yeah, it's a big issue, I think, really figuring out where to start. I think a lot of the people that I talk with and work with, you know, come to me because they they know sugar is bad for them. They know they're having too much of it, but they just don't know where to start with getting it out of their diet or reducing it. And so I think that's really one of the main reasons why I wanted to write my new book, Sugar List, which is going to be coming out in December. And really what I talk about in the book is it's got to be baby steps. I think we have this mindset, especially around the diet culture, that you have to do all or nothing, right? You have to be all in with some program or regimen or whatever you want to call it. And the reality is that that doesn't work. And you're more likely to be successful if you allow yourself grace and you allow yourself to take baby steps and make small changes incrementally. And I think that's where most people have the biggest problems is that they just dive in and they'll say, okay, we got to get all the sugar out of our diet. We got to throw it all away overnight. And it's just not sustainable and it's not realistic. And so I talk in the book a lot about making those small changes. One of the first things I recommend people change is their beverages. That's the first place to start because we're in this very beverage centric society right now where everybody has like a thermos or a cup or something that they're drinking like all the time. As I have both right here. (laughs) I have something or more than one, right? I sometimes have two or three things that I'm drinking and I'm like, what am I doing? So, um, Start there because that's where a lot of the excess sugar comes in. It sneaks in through our coffee drinks. It sneaks in. If you're a soda drinker, that's not a good idea. And so really start there. And I think figuring out how you can either eliminate the sugar from your beverages or really reduce it is key. And then once you master that, then it's about kind of moving on. I think that the best strategy is to do it by meals. And so then maybe thinking about breakfast. I know, you know, I got little kids, we're rushing them off to school in the morning. So it's always a little chaotic in the morning to figure out breakfast. And I know for a lot of families, they feel the same way. And so lots of parents end up defaulting to cereal because it's easy and quick and the kids can manage it themselves, but it's usually loaded with sugar. And so figuring out some alternatives that you can have quick and easy in the morning that are not going to be loaded with sugar. So we've become huge fans of egg bites in our house. I've been making them on the weekends. It's super easy. Really, it's just mixing up eggs and cheese and getting some vegetables in there and then baking them. And then they're good to go for, you know, a couple of days into the week. And it's easy in the morning to just pop them in the microwave to heat them up. So coming up with some plans and strategies that'll help you to really just navigate the day and the situation is really what the book is all about and what, you know, is a good first step. Yeah. So, and we do do egg bites. So that's good to know. <laughs> like, I'm always like, is it good or bad that, I, you know, but that's good to know with the no sugar. Um, you know, your, your work has also been recognized for its contribution to understanding food addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain how sugar addiction relates to food addiction and why this distinction is important? Yeah. So we've actually, uh, started a lot of this work on food addiction way back when I first came to Princeton. um, When I was a graduate student, I was interested in really trying to figure out what was contributing to the obesity epidemic. And the lab that I was working in 
my advisor had been doing work on appetitive behaviors and motivation and kind of what made people, you know, decide to, you know, behave certain ways and those factors that were associated with, you know, behaviors that we essentially are motivated to do. Eating is one of those things, right? We're motivated to eat because we need calories, we need nutrients. But, you know, it seemed like at the time, and this is going back in the early 2000s, there had been so much emphasis on, you know, the rising rates of obesity. And we were starting to hear a lot more about how, you know, there was this increase that was happening pretty steadily in obesity rates. And we had all this great information warning people like, all right, don't overeat, don't eat too much processed food. It's it's not necessarily something that's good for you. You should limit how much you have of fat and carbohydrates and that kinds of things. And people had a, a tough time dealing with it and sticking to a healthy diet, even though it was basically laid out pretty clearly. And so we started looking at this from a different angle and wondering, well, what if some of these foods that we're eating these days, these highly processed foods are causing the brain to change in a way that's like an addiction? Maybe people are addicted to these foods, like people could get addicted to drugs or alcohol. And so we started doing a whole bunch of experiments to see whether or not our little lab rats could become addicted to sugar. And we started with sugar because sugar seems to be the primary ingredient that's driving these mm -hmm. addictive like, you know, urges. And when we talked to people and we kind of looked at the anecdotal literature, sugar seems to stand out as the thing that people have a hard time controlling their intake of. And so we started off looking at sugar and now if you kind of flash forward, we have all the criteria met as sugar being an addictive substance according to the criteria that the American Psychiatric Association lays out for, you know, what do you have to do to be considered an addictive substance or yeah. addictive behavior? And so all those criteria met with sugar. So it is addictive. Um, whether or not that means anything or gets recognized is another story, right? Because lots of things are addictive, but they're still used and abused in some ways, like caffeine right. is one example. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think it's an important point to illustrate that there are addictive foods out there. And this could be why it's so hard to put them down and so hard to resist eating these in excess because, you know, you might be told by the food industry, oh, just eat it in moderation or, oh, well, you should have one serving size. Well, that's like telling, you know, someone who's an alcoholic, they should have like a half a glass of wine. That's not always going to be so easy to do. Right. That makes so much sense. So for the people who have a sugar addiction, does your book all, um, offer alternatives or strategies for satisfying your sweet tooth in a healthier way? Yes, absolutely. So the sort of subtitle is uh, a seven step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings and conquer your addiction. So yes. So the book is, I think it's a great mix of like nerdy science because that's me. I'm a nerdy scientist but with practical, realistic steps and tips to follow. Because I think it's important for people to know the research and know that this is all based off of science and the studies and understanding this is not some like gimmicky made up thing to do, that there's research that's backing this up. But then after that, figuring out, okay, well, now what do I do about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I walk people through a seven-step plan a lot of it has to do with really just understanding where the sugars are coming from, because I think you'd be shocked if you, you know, I've worked with people or talked to people who will say, oh, I don't, I don't have any problems with sugar. I don't have any sugar in my diet. And then they look at 
what they're eating and really get down to the nitty gritty and they realize, oh, wow, there's sugar in ketchup. There's sugar in that salad dressing. There's sugar in that drink that I buy every day at Starbucks, Mm -hmm. like places where you wouldn't even expect to see it. I mean, it's in bacon. It's in taco seasoning. It's in like all these different random places that you wouldn't necessarily think to look for it. So figuring out where it is, figuring out, you know, how you can replace it with things you like. So you're not feeling deprived because we're not all about deprivation here. We're about replacing it with healthier alternatives. So nobody's being deprived of anything. And then coping with the cravings and coping with those social situations and that like day-to-day stuff. Like, what do you do when you're super stressed out because you got like 50 emails that you got to respond to and your kids are crying and the dog's limping and all this random stuff that happens and you want to turn to something to make you temporarily feel good and it maybe it's a donut. Yeah. And so how to recognize that and stop that from happening because there's better ways to cope with stressors and I do a lot to help people kind of navigate that aspect of it. Yeah, that's so important and definitely something I still need help with. Um, so we will talk a little bit more about Sugarless, but I do want to um, turn the attention to the book, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, especially mm-hmm. as a mom of technically two toddlers. My youngest is uh, 16 months and then my daughter is almost three. Um, so this is a comprehensive guide. You have month to month support. Um, for a child's health and development through their nutrition. Um, so can you start by sharing, like, again, what inspired you to write this book and what can parents and caregivers expect to gain from it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, I love the cover of this book. Um, yeah. It's just so welcoming and the designer did such a great job. So what inspired me to write this book was that I had written a book prior to this called What to Eat When You're Pregnant, because mm-hmm. when I got pregnant the first time, I was a little bit like shocked at the lack of information out there for pregnant women about what they should eat. It was all about what you shouldn't eat. And I just thought it was like very negative and like a bit of fear mongering, like, Mm -hmm. oh, don't eat raw deli meat or don't eat stuff that's been left out. It was all like scare tactics. Like you're going to get sick. You're going to hurt your baby. And I just knowing what I knew about nutrition and the brain, I knew there was a lot more to it than just avoiding things. There's actually an important piece that nobody was really talking about, which was you should eat these things. Yeah. So I wrote that book and then this was really the follow-up to that book. Um, And so the idea was to understand what do you feed your baby and toddler? And it can sounds like a really easy thing. Like, oh, you feed them baby food. But for new parents, especially, it can really be scary. And even for me, as somebody who has this background in this area, when it was time to start feeding our daughter solids, I really was at a loss because the advice that the pediatrician was giving was really antiquated. Yeah. And there's lots of mixed information out there about, oh, do you start with grains, fruits, vegetables, like which ones, what order, how often do you do it? Like so many questions, so many questions. And so that's really what the book is about. It's walking people through all those questions. What does the latest research say? Not what does it say from 1950, which is probably what your pediatrician is telling you. (laughs) Now, what does the latest studies say? And then helping parents to get ideas on you know, how to cultivate their children's palate from a young age, because it's super important. What we eat when we're young really lays the foundation for the types of foods that we prefer to eat as we get older. So exposing your child to all these different types of tastes is really important at a young age, but it's a challenge because, Mm -hmm. you know, your kids 
crying and, you know, they, they only like a small number of things as a Busy parents, we tend to default and say, okay, well, let's just give them what they like so they eat something so we can yeah. go on our day. Mm-hmm. So I kind of walk through that with parents and, and caregivers and talk about ways in which you can incorporate some of these different flavors and foods into your kid's diet. And I do it on a month-to-month plan. And so it's really like changing things up each month, focusing on you know different nutrients each month. And there's a whole bunch of really great toddler friendly recipes in here that are good for the whole family. Right. So it's not like mushy toddler puree, like every day it's stuff that even older kids and adults will like. So I often recommend, um, you know, and I've heard from other people who've loved the book that, you know, they'll make one of those recipes as like the side dish for the family for dinner, but then their little one has something that they can focus on. Yeah. Um, I interviewed um, one of the, creators of solid starts. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's like a, it's a baby led weaning app and it really helps me with my kids on just like what to feed my kids. Um, but they suggested the hundred foods before one. And so I was able to get both my kids to try a hundred different foods before one. Um, and I feel like that was such a challenge, but an exciting one to try to get all different vegetables, fruits, meats. And because you do like you talk to your pediatrician, they're like, oh, you can only feed one new food a week or like whatever it is. And um, I learned so much from them as well with like what has more to do with allergens and like you can feed them all the stuff. And um, that's something that I feel like a lot of people are really confused about. So I feel like your book will be a great navigating point for people to know what to do because like you said like there's nowhere to get like there's it's hard to get help unless you're really researching what what do you do and to have yeah. a comprehensive guide is super important yeah you know it's it's really i think important and um you know the allergies i think is a big barrier for a lot of people because yeah. people again it's kind of like during pregnancy like oh avoid this avoid that and i think that kind of carries on to after the baby's born like oh avoid all these foods because the kid might be allergic Yes, if you have concerns about, and I talk about this in the book about like, what does the research actually say? And the reality is, if you don't have an older child already that has food allergies, Mm -hmm. odds are your younger one isn't going to have them. So if it's not something that your family's already dealing with, odds are it's probably not going to affect your your new baby. So I think that understanding, obviously, we have to do things carefully, but we also need to keep in mind that you know, exposing kids to a variety of foods is really important. And, you know, the earlier we can do it, the better. Yeah. And then, you know, as you said, nutrition, it plays such a big role in in their child, like child's growth and development. Could you highlight some of the key nutrients or foods that are particularly important for infants and toddlers and like why that they matter so much? Yeah. One of the big ones is fat. And I guess most people will think, what? Like we want to avoid fat, but no, Kids need healthy fats because the brain needs fat in order to communicate with cells in the brain. And I just read about that. Sorry to cut you off, but I just read about that recently and I never heard of that before about fat being so important for the kids' brain development. And I'm like, nobody's ever said, I randomly came across that. No doctor has ever told me that. So that's, yeah, that was also true. (laughs) Yeah. So the brain, you know, we have not to get like into like a neuroscience lesson, but you know, we have neurons in our brain and those neurons have to talk to each other in order, you know, to make things happen, right. In order for us to be able to pick up our hand or, you know, run away, whatever it might be, or to think. And those communications happen because there's fat that insulates the neuron. 
And so there's fat that actually wraps around our neurons to oh. make sure that that it's insulated so that the message doesn't disappear. It propagates the message. And we need fat in our bodies in order to do that. And now I think most people are kind of afraid of getting fat or being overweight. And so that's why they avoid eating excess amounts of fats. But that's not true. You are really in need of healthy fats. And so avocados is one of my go-to foods, especially for mm -hmm. toddlers, because it's easy for kids to pick up. It's, you know, got like a very like soft texture, especially if you could get one that's, you know, at that like peakness of being ripe and it has healthy fats in it. It also has protein in it. And that's really important because it's the fat and the protein that's going to help your baby stay satiated or feel full. Mm -hmm. And so when you focus on too many carbohydrates, the carbohydrates are kind of like a quick fix. Like, yeah, you feel full for a minute, but then you're starving very shortly thereafter. Yeah. And so fats and proteins are going to help you have more of a sustained satiety level. Mm -hmm. And so avocados are a good source of that. Um, and really just, you know, avoiding the processed fats, right? And, and so that's the thing because people will say, well, how do I know if it's a good fat or a bad fat? If it's a bag of potato chips, it's a bad fat, right? <laughs> if it's coming in a box or a bag, it's a bad fat. But fish, for example, like salmon is a good source of healthy fats. Um, and that's also a very friendly food for toddlers mm. um, because, you know, if you bake up some salmon, you, you can flake it up and the kids could eat it on their own. Um, so really trying to focus on those healthy fats, I think, is key um, because, you know, like just for some reason tend to exclude them from our diet, but right. it's really important part for toddlers. Yeah. That's so, that's such good advice because it is, everyone's scared of fat. So, but to know that it's so important into the development is something that I feel like parents need to really recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So we're going to go into sugarless. Um, we kind of, in the beginning, talked a little bit about diet and sugar. And can you just set the stage a little bit more in this um, groundbreaking work that you are about to tackle in the world of sugar addiction and provide your science-based background to plan to break free from its grasp? Yeah. So I think it's really, for me, with the book Sugarless, it's really about helping people to look at this from the standpoint of revamping our relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yes, the book is focused on addiction to sugar and, you know, how to break free from that. But I think a lot of it is also built around the fact that we develop this addiction to sugar for some reason. Mm -hmm. And for many people, it's because we live in this very sugar centric society where it's just sort of there and we just are, I guess, passively absorbing it, right? Just by living yeah. <laughs> because we have so many foods that have added sugar in them and we just are eating these foods and don't realize that the sugar's adding up and over time it's causing health problems. I think that's the biggest issue when it comes to sugar. It's kind of how it was with tobacco back in like the 1950s. <laughs> It was something that was socially acceptable. Everybody was smoking cigarettes back then. Um, there were some warnings about it, but not really. And it wasn't like you were going to drop dead from smoking a cigarette. But if you flash forward, you know, if you smoke for 20 years, guess what? You're probably going to get lung cancer. You're probably going to get cardiovascular disease. You're going to have all of these long-term health complications that were actually linked back to your smoking that started 20 years ago. And I think what we're seeing now is the same as happening with sugar. 
But the problem is that we're starting this sugar addiction when we're like one year old. Yeah. Or if not before. And so it almost would be like a one year old baby walking around with a cigarette. Well, then they're probably going to get lung cancer when they're 20. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now is that we have a lot of young people in their 20s or even kids, teenagers developing type 2 diabetes, which is something that we used to not ever see in a child. Mm -hmm. It used to be called juvenile diabetes or adult onset diabetes. Type 1 diabetes was something that we primarily saw in children. And that's the type of diabetes that has to do with the pancreas just not working correctly. Mm -hmm. That really has nothing to do with what you're eating or your diet. It's more of a genetic thing that happens to some kids. And then type two diabetes was adult onset diabetes because nobody really would see that type of diabetes in kids, but now we're seeing it quite often. Yeah. And so it's really about understanding that, you know, this food environment that we live in is pushing these foods on us. And we have to be able to recognize that, recognize the marketing traps and how to make those changes so that, you know, we can kind of dig ourselves out of this pit because mm-hmm. that's really what it's become. And I think for a lot of families, it's a family issue because mom and dad or, or mom and mom or dad and dad or whoever it is, parents are trying to stay healthy for their kids and you don't realize it until it's problem time that it's linked back to what we're eating. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times, well, I see this at my kid's school all the time. There's these kids running around, they look great, they're active. And if you look in their lunchbox, it's loaded with sugar. Yeah. And parents just don't realize that, okay, just because your kid looks good now doesn't mean they look good on the inside, A. And B, they're having their brain be trained to crave all this sugar. And so when they get a little bit older and maybe they're not burning off all those calories as quickly as they were when they were seven, then that's when the problems can ensue. So it's really something that we need to approach from not only like, uh, you know, breaking the addiction standpoint, but I think just sort of really revisiting our relationship with food and, and what it means to us. Yeah. Um, so as someone like myself, who I don't eat a lot of sugar, but gummy candy is my Achilles heel. I have it like only in my car. And when I leave work, it's definitely a comfort thing. Um, but could you share any strategies or insights from the book that listeners and myself can apply to their daily lives if they have something like that where they have one or two things that they really need to tune up? <laughs> yeah. Them, I guess. Yeah. So I think that, again, this isn't meant to come across like, oh, you have to give up every aspect of sugar in your life. If you have like a really healthy diet and you really find that that's literally like the piece of sugar that you have, then I often would say to people, well, then if that's the worst thing you're doing, then okay. Yeah. It's not so bad. But I think the problem is, well, there's a lot of people who think that, okay, I'm doing this one thing. My gummy candies is my little device that I give myself. But then they don't realize that their coffee has three packets of sugar in it or their coffee creamer. I don't, this is no coffee creamer or sugar. So (laughs) just like me, this is just coffee, literally coffee. Um, But so I think it's about, again, what I say in the book is, you know, you have to think about if you have this routine and a lot of people have this, right? Where it's, okay, this is when I eat my sugar. 
And that's part of the addiction mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, if you can't give it up, then that's probably not a good thing, right? If you, you yeah. should be able to walk away or, or yeah. say, oh, you know what, I'm not going to do that for a week, <laughs> right? And if you can't, then that means you're dependent. Yeah. And so I often say to people, you know, you have to look at it. Why? Why do you do that? Is it because maybe you're decompressing on your ride home from work and the sugar is a way to self-medicate? right? It's helping you relax. Yeah. It's like an anti-anxiety thing. Yes. That's a lot of it. A lot of people have that same exact situation. And so, you know, I often tell people, you really got to just look at these relationships and say, okay, well, it's, if I'm using this sugar to self-medicate, maybe there's a better way to do it. Or maybe instead of jumping in the car to rush home after work, maybe I need to do five laps in the parking lot, Ooh. walking fast to kind of burn off any mental anguish I have yeah. and then hop in the car. And then maybe I won't feel compelled to need to, you know, pound a piece of candy. Yeah. So thinking about like just ways you can recognize the relationship and I'm not saying you can't eat the candy, but I'm saying think about it, think right. about it before you eat it and think, how can I interrupt this relationship? How can I break this association? Because that's really what addiction is. Addiction mm -hmm. is a very severe, strong form of learning and learning is based off of associations. Mm -hmm. And so if you could break that association where, you know, the candy no longer is the thing that makes you feel better, maybe now it becomes, oh, that quick walk was the thing that made me feel better. Or I don't know, there's some dog that walks by every day and I give the dog a, a hug or something. Yeah. I don't know, whatever it might be. Breaking yeah. that relationship is really going to be the way to break those addiction tendencies. And that's the key. Yeah. Um, that's great advice. Um, you also talk a little bit in Sugarless about the idea of retraining your taste, bu taste buds. Can you share some strategies um, for developing a preference for foods that are not sugar heavy? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I often hear from people after they've cut out a lot of the sugar in their diet is that when they do taste something that has sugar in it, it's almost aversive. It's like gross. And you might think that sounds strange because how could anyone ever think something tastes gross if it's sweet? But the reality is that our taste buds have become so stimulated by sugar and constantly being bombarded by it that we're constantly seeking more and more and more sugar because we're basically setting the threshold higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And so when you cut that out and your brain adapts and your taste buds adapt, and then you suddenly eat something that has sugar in it, it tastes really sweet, like super sweet. Yeah. And so um, even with, with fruits, one of the things that I've heard many, many times is that, you know, people used to say to me, oh, well, I don't, really think fruit tastes sweet. So I don't even bother eating it. It's not, I don't get it. Like, but then when they cut sugar out and all the processed food, then they eat a berry and they're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize how sweet this thing was. Yeah. And so it's right. because the brain is so used to being overstimulated by sugar all the time that, you know, you don't taste the sweetness in these things that naturally contain sugar. So yeah. again, I think that's really one of the things you can look forward to is that these foods that are really very healthy, like fruits are going to taste sweet and they are going to taste good. And mm -hmm. that, you know, over time, those foods that, you know, are loaded with added sugar are going to actually start to taste aversive and you're really not going to even crave them. Yeah, that's, um, that's, so that makes so much sense as well. I was going to ask to wrap things up, the key takeaway for listeners about healthy eating habits. You know, I think for me, the key takeaway really is 
making small steps. And one of the things that I really make a point of in Sugarless and talking about is the fact that it's not linear. Life is not linear. But I think we have this mindset of like, oh, we have all these steps. Like you have to climb the corporate ladder. You have to advance, advance, advance. And that's not real life. I mean, in real life, we have to sidestep sometimes and maybe take a step back. Um, even when it comes to being a mom, like I think a lot of moms who work go through this whole like anguish of like, oh, should I go back to work? Should I not? Because we were kind of trained like, oh, you have to go and advance yourself. And if you take a break or side step for a bit, you're getting off the track. And mm -hmm. I feel like that could be a whole other conversation we have. <laughs> but I apply that in Sugarless because you're, what you're eating is a journey. It's not this linear relationship that you have with food where you know, you have to keep going this way, or if you deviate, then you failed. And now you've like gone off the plan. That's not how it works. So the plan is really built around allowing you to make mistakes, allowing you mm -hmm. to have slip ups, because guess what? It was Susie's birthday and everybody was having cake and I wanted a piece of cake. So I had it. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Um, and so it's not an excuse to give up. It's not an excuse to throw in the towel and start Monday or start in the new year or start next week. It's allowed. And I think having that ability and understanding that, you know, that's kind of built into this plan is really important because it's very different than, you know, other types of ways of eating that are really not very forgiving. And yeah. I think we need to be forgiving because right. the reality is, you know, we're living in a society where, you know, sugar's everywhere. Food is a big part of the way we socialize. And mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, having something where it's really rigid and strict with all these rules makes it so that people are basically setting themselves up to fail. That's why yeah. we have this billion dollar diet industry, mm -hmm. because, you know, everybody fails at one thing and they move on to the next thing. Right. But you can't fail at this plan because it's built in so that as long as you're making a step in the right direction, then you're winning because you are, you're doing something good for your health. You're making a healthy choice. And, you know, that's, that is the goal is to really just be on the path of health and making better choices. Yeah. And I think that's so important. You know, as you mentioned in the beginning, like not just, you have to completely cut everything off and then like, or else, you know, like you just said, then you fail. Um, and I think that's important for everyone to, you know, you don't want to feel like you're failing at it, but just having the steps to get to where you want to be eventually, whether that's in, you know, a month or a year, I think that's really important for listeners and they're going to gain so much knowledge from that. And I'm so excited to read it as well. Um, and so I, there's so, I could literally sit and talk and ask a million questions <laughs> forever, but you know, um, that we're going to end it there. Um, so that's going to bring us to the end of another episode of the running Y mom. Thank you for taking a deep dive into the world of nutrition, sugar addiction, and early childhood feeding with the brilliant Dr. Nicole Avina. Um, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your invaluable insights. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. Um, oh, you're welcome. Yes. I encourage all of our listeners to explore Dr. Avina's work, including her upcoming book, sugarless and her previous titles, like what to feed your baby and toddlers. And hedonic eating and what to eat when you are trying to get pregnant and while yeah. you're pregnant. Those are just, everybody needs to know all about that. Um, the knowledge and strategies that she offers are not only eye-opening, but also incredibly practical for anyone looking to make positive change into their diet. Remember, our health journey is a marathon, not a sprint. It's about making informed choices and nurturing our 
well-being, especially when it comes to our little ones. Thank you again for being a guiding light in this journey. Um, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review and sharing it. You can follow me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore, and you can find Dr. Ravino on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Avino. And don't forget to pre-order her book, Sugarless, which comes out December 19th, 2023. Yep. And it's uh, available for pre-order now. Okay. It's available for pre-order now and I'll link everything in the show notes for you. Um, so thank you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember you are strong, you are capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Cheers. And I will be back next Tuesday.